Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My Seven Wonders. In ancient times, great pyramids, monumental temples and other superstructures were lauded and listed as wonders of the world. And like days of the week and deadly sins, there were always seven of them. More recent magnificent sevens have included other man-made marvels such as Machu Picchu and the Taj Mahal, or awe-inspiring natural phenomena such as the Grand Canyon and the Great Barrier Reef. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast, and the guest I'm asking today is the composer, musicologist and broadcaster Howard Goodall, CBE. A prolific composer, Howard has created choral works for the concert hall and has written the score for several stage musicals such as The Hired Man and Bend It Like Beckham, as well as the theme tunes of a number of TV programmes including Blackadder, QI and The Catherine Tate Show. And over the years, he has also presented many radio and TV series which focus on conveying his enthusiasm, knowledge and understanding of music of all sorts to all sorts of listeners and viewers. So given your CV, Howard, nobody is surprised to discover you've included several wonders from the world of music in your list. Uh, Would you you say you and perhaps everybody who's talented at music were were born with an appreciation of music or is it down to early years, um, piano lessons and singing in the choir? Well, that's a one, because often people, parents say to me, look, uh, how do I get my children into music? Um, do we have to be musicians ourselves? And, you know, there are plenty of lessons from history. People like J.S. Bach, who came from an extended family of musicians, reaching back a kind of century before him. And yeah. then after him as well, his children were all musical. Um, so there's a slight fear, I think, amongst kind of muggles that uh, you have to be somehow specially musical. I think the answer to this is that your house has to be, that the way the child grows up, has to be one where music is loved and is valued. And it doesn't really matter yes. what that music is. But if you grow up with parents who listen to music and who like music and go to concerts or whatever it is they do, or sing a bit around the piano, or, it doesn't really matter what standard we're talking about. Is If it's something that seemed to be of value, uh, mm. then I think children pick that up and they think, oh, music's something, you know, A, it's fun, but also it's something that my parents... Uh, I seem to think is important. And I think that's the key thing because, you know, a lot of, lot of children then go and learn the piano or the violin or the guitar or whatever it is. A lot of children sing uh, like I did as a child. But, um, you know, uh, amongst my own siblings, we had the same upbringing. We went to the mm. same sort of schools. And we both sang in a choir. We all sang in choir, all learnt instruments. But um, I guess I'm the one who's ended up with a full-time professional career in music. But then for my other siblings, they've had a lifetime of joy of the hobby and the interaction with music um, nonetheless. So I think that one of the things about, you know, starting young with music is that it's going to be something, even if you don't take it on in any way professionally, it's going to be something of fantastic value to your life all the way through your life. And what's more, the music you like at 10 and at 20 and at 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 and 70 is often a different list of music. 
So it sort mm. of goes on, sort of reviving itself in your life in different ways, and you discover new things. Um, you talk about different styles of music, and I've mentioned in, in describing you, um, one route is taking you into choral music. Uh, as it happened, you met up with um, uh, Rowan Atkinson and Richard Curtis, and, and in, a, in a way that's taking you to doing TV themes, which is a different sort of thing. Then there's musicals. I think you're even in a band as well, as a lot of yeah. musical people are when they're young. Um, are you? Do you think your um, again? Is this particular to you that you are interested in lots of different styles, or could you have been just choral music uh, if if things hadn't gone the way well, they did? Well, um, because I was a chorister as a boy, I think that was one option. But can I just say, Clive, you'd never be able to make a living being a choral composer. Uh, no, I mean, no composer in history has made a living just from being a choral composer. You had to have done something else. Um, yes. And so it's something you do. Um, you write choral music because you love it. And, and I've actually started writing much more choral music in, as it were, the second half of my life than the first half of my yeah. life when I was writing a lot of TV and film, etc., etc. And I think that um, I also decided that I think you set a standard for yourself in terms of what you know already. And I knew a lot of choral music when I was a kid because I was a chorister. And I think I, I, one thing was a bit slightly daunted by the fact of how good it was, how much there already was. And there's a sort of an arrogance, isn't there, as a composer thinking, well, I think I can add to that list. Uh, oh. You know, and I think you need to be perhaps a bit more mature to think, OK, I'll have a go. All right. OK, well, I hope I hope that means you make a fortune every year from music you've composed <laughs> for Mr. Bean or, or, you know, those big successes, but uh, which I understand has generated quite a lot of income for some people. Well, yes, but I should also say that I should also say what I always say to people who ask me about my career and whether they would like to do the same sort of thing. I young composer. I also say that I my attitude to whether it's a Mr. Bean theme or whether it's a, a, a mass for a choir is exactly the same. My attitude to the music and the job in hand is always the same. I don't treat one thing as the kind of, uh, you know, money earning, uh, necessary but not too yeah. much fun. And other thing is important. I think it's all important. All right. Well, let's go on to your let's go on to your wonders and your first wonder. I suppose you've taken it to come up with an answer which is a very literal answer, uh, but uh, a perfectly understandable one. Who 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 is your first wonder? Well, Stevie Wonder. <laughs> I think surely everybody's first wonder. Um, uh, you know, Stevie Wonder is is incredible. I did, by the way, one of the things I did do is I tried to think if I was going to have to choose uh, people to make a case for, as it were, yeah. uh, Stevie Wonder. I don't. It's not very difficult for me to make a case for Stevie Wonder because I mean he is a complete genius, and we are lucky to be alive at the same time as him and to have seen his music unfold in our lifetimes. How amazing is that? Imagine to have been alive at the same time as you know, great figures from history and actually heard these pieces for the first time, like we all did when we heard Talking Book and Inner Visions and Songs in the Key of Life. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was young and impressionable at the time. And that impression was enormous. And it's been left with me for my whole life. And his impact on, on 20th century music, just gigantic. And uh, I did sort of think, well, if you're going to have Stevie Wonder, why haven't you got Paul McCartney? But I think in a way, I don't have to make a case for Paul McCartney. I didn't include him on my list because everybody knows he's the living wonder of the world. But I'm going to make the case for Stevie Wonder up there with Paul. Um, uh, you know, obviously, they did a track together uh, to bring the two greatest musical geniuses yes. of our time together in one place. Maybe not the, their best work when they came together, but uh, that's just no. uh, an aside thought. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but just remind us, Stevie Wonder, who was blind virtually from birth, he was a, a musical prodigy and um and extremely yeah. talented in so many different directions um so um, yes. we're perhaps going back over the you know how does somebody become or start so so fantastic um is 
Is, is there any answer to that in his case, do you think? Well, I think in his case, he obviously was incredibly gifted. He, he can sort of take any instrument and play it kind of brilliantly, which is very rare, I think, to be good on almost everything. And then he was, you know, writing from an early age. I think, you know, for a lot of African-American artists, they, they grow up in a, in a church setting, mm. uh, you know, soul singing in church is where the, the, the attitude of, of performance and making it a normal thing to do, to get up there with a microphone and sing a solo and to extemporize on things so that you sort of, you decorate the music you're singing, whether it's a hymn or a spiritual or whatever it is, you decorate it in your own way. I think that's a very good route into thinking of how you might write yourself because you're, you're learning the sort of ornament of music and the techniques. And I think that that was a big thing for him. He was, I think in a way, the, the bigger question with Stevie Wonder is not, gosh, what a prodigious talent at such an early age. Where did that come from? Because lots of children sort of display extraordinary talents early on. The bigger question is how extraordinary that this Motown artist, this young chap who was basically writing in the Motown style that he saw all around him and singing songs mm. both by him and by other people. How did he suddenly turn into the person who came up with those four extraordinary albums in a row mm. uh, in the 70s? Uh, talking book, Innovisions, Fulfilling This First for Thy, Songs in the Key of Life, uh, and then to some extent Hotter Than July and um, Secret Life of Plants. That sort of kind of seven year corridor, mm. but he produced kind of the five greatest albums of all time. And I think the question is, how did he suddenly become that person? Because what he did was he took um, African-American music, soul, uh, you know, with a, with a good d dosage of, of gospel in there as well, and Motown, he took that and he melded it with basically you know, uh, Central American music, with, with Cuban and to some extent South American Brazilian music as well, with those rhythms and a, a kind of whole different style. He melded it into a new style. And we all take it for granted, don't we, in the mm. years that follow anything like this. Oh, well, that's what was inevitably going to happen. Someone was going to put together soul with South American music. And, uh, you know, that was going to happen anyway because they were both there and they were in the roughly the same geographical zone. So someone would eventually do it and then we'd all enjoy those rhythms and those extraordinary cross rhythms that he introduced from uh, Cuban music in particular. Well, it's never inevitable because what you need actually is a genius at that bottleneck to say this is how you do it. Yes. And we now live with the reality that he introduced. And, you know, before Stevie Wonder, that um, crossover might have existed in one or two small uh, places but what he did was make it mainstream and then it became our mainstream and those yeah. albums sound like a new music being made not just by one person but he's actually set, setting out a whole new sector of music here's right. a whole new way you can do music right. and it's this combination of, of the as it were north and south american styles yeah it's interesting you mentioned paul mccartney along the way because the, the same is sort of true in a different way about uh, Lennon and McCartney who were doing very good Buddy Holly covers and so forth but within them there was this greater talent for for songwriting um, I, I, yes I, and, and the talent that, that it's kind of block what I would describe as blotting paper which is everything they heard and everything they absorbed from around the musical world got into their writing and they turned it into they took A and they took B and they turned it into C mm. and it like Stevie Wonder the journey the Beatles went from being a very good skiffle band to yeah. being the most adventurous musicians on the planet. Yeah. It's about five years. It's yes. extraordinary how quick that happened. Yeah. 
and and just and not to dwell on the fact that he's blind, but also or indeed the the, the qualities of the um, Lennon McCartney. But you're a great expert on music. You you can read music, you can write music, you can put it all down and you know think about it. Uh, can you understand how? People who can't read and write music or can't even see the the page can manage to come up with ideas and retain them and, uh, you know, and write in that way. Well, um, and here's the thing. Stevie Wonder lived in an, in an era of technological advance, which became very, very useful to people, for example, who are of limited sight or no sight. So he lived in the time of the invention of MIDI musical instrument, digital interchange, mm. and uh, you know, forms of software that could compose for him, as it were, yes. with his hands and his ears. And of course, there are quite a few composers, believe it or not, in history who were blind, because uh, yeah. they could play keyboards. Once you get to know a keyboard really well, when you're learning to play the piano or the organ, you should really be able to play it without looking at it ever. Yeah. And of course, your, your eyes are then looking at the music. And what happens is, if you don't, and this is true of someone who's sighted, if you don't read music, you can still learn music because you can hear it. And those people tend to be incredibly good at hearing a piece of music and immediately knowing to be able to reproduce it on the keyboard because their, their audio sensors sort of goes right up to the top of uh, top to 10 and they can hear things. And I would imagine that uh, Stevie Wonder from early, early age got absolutely brilliant at listening to a harmony or a rhythm or something and knowing exactly how to reproduce that mm. by playing it or seeing it. And, um, he did, you know, in the olden days, composers had to have an amanuensis, which is someone who wrote down mm. what they were hearing because they couldn't write it down because they were blind. Uh, in fact, he wouldn't now need that because software will do that for him, which is a wonderful thing. But I, that's not in any way, it's not in any way taking away from the fact that it is miraculous uh, what he has done in his well, life. Well, I, I think you've, uh, you've expressed, uh, you know, I think you, you put into words the, the, the wonder of Stevie Wonder, uh, but you're also, in a sense, leading on to your next wonder, uh, talking about technological advances. So tell, tell us what your yes. second wonder is. OK, so little nerd alert here, everybody, because I'm going to mention a piece of equipment. Yes. It's the Yamaha CS80 polyphonic synthesizer. Uh, released in 1977, yeah. and they made a limited number of them, and they stopped making them in 1980. It's the greatest synthesizer ever made, and uh, it's a good follow-on from Stevie Wonder because he was a very, very keen player of it, and yeah. had, I think, probably several. And you often see him in the 70s and 80s playing a, a Yamaha CS80, yeah. and it is definitely a wonder of the world. And the, here's the really, you know, frustrating thing, Clive, is that. Mm. Um, when we were touring with Rowan Atkinson's show live in those early days, the 80s and late 70s, uh, we had one, which we took around with us on tour. Oh, and yeah. like everything else, you know, when it got a bit old, we got rid of it or Rowan sold it or yeah. lost it or something. In fact, I rang him up the other day and said, what happened to it? And he said, I have no idea. Uh, they are worth an absolute fortune oh, now. You can't, no. you can't get them for love and money. But shouldn't you have been in... Shouldn't you have been in charge of it as the as the musician? You should have been. Well, I think I probably had it on loan in my flat for a long time. Yeah. But I can't, you know, because new piece of equipment comes along, you think oh, I'll have that instead. Yeah. And uh, how stupid that was, because now the original ones are incredibly valuable and incredibly difficult to get hold of. However, they are full of transistors, which are very difficult to replace these days. So if you did have one. Yeah. Um, you would be endlessly opening it up trying to fix it. So there's a downside there. And there's a digital clone of it that you can get. So you can sort of have it on your computer in, in the digital ether world. Uh, a company called Arturia make, make one called a CS80V, which is a, a digital version of it, mm. it's a clone. 
um, but it's not like a real actual thing in your hands. And I just want to make one further connection with Stevie on the CS80, which is that CS80, I suppose the most famous composer you can think of who used the CS80 was Vangelis. Yeah. His Blade Runner and Chariots of Fire scores in particular were all done on a, well, mostly done on a Yamaha CS80. And it was kind of what it was. It was like a synthesizer that, that the first time you could hear big sweeps of sound like an orchestra being made on a machine because up until polyphonic synthesizers came along and it wasn't the first, the CS80, it was the second, uh, Moog made one called the Polymoog, which yeah. is a bit like an electric organ. But the point about it was before that synthesizers which had been around for about 10 years commercially before that, could only play one note at a time. He mm. called it monophonic. And the idea was to, tr the holy grail was to try and do this, but make it so you could play any number of notes you liked and play chords and things mm. like this. And this is what the Yamaha CS80 was. It was a massive uh, breakthrough technologically. And so composers and keyboard players flocked to it. But the thing was, it was actually based on a mothership called the GX1, <laughs> which Stevie Wonder called the Dream Machine, of which there are only about four left in the world, of which I think he may even have two of those four, and Benny from ABBA has the third. <laughs> and I think there's one in a garage in Wales somewhere yes. that someone reconstructed. However, the GX1 is basically the template. Yamaha sort of put this one out. It cost what it would cost to buy a three-bedroom house now. It was mm. unbelievably expensive. And what it was was basically a way to find out how they could make this work. So they created the architecture of it. And so on those early ABBA albums and on Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life, you hear a huge amount of GX1. And uh, then they progressed from GX1, the mothership, to the CS80, which was available for everybody. Um, and I never saw a GX1 in the flesh, still haven't to this day. Uh, I'm waiting for Benny from ABBA to invite me to his studio in Stockholm to see his GX1. But they're very scared of even turning them on these days because they think that the minute you turn it on, it's probably going to go wrong. I told you I told you it was going to be nerdy. It was a little bit nerdy, nerdish, but I think we've all learned a bit from that. So the Yamaha CS80, <laughs> uh, it's, one, it's a little bit like moon landings. It's only 77 yes. to 80, and then the world has moved on, yes. or but not to do anything oh, better, well, not in your opinion anyway. Or is it just well, because it was they, the, a breakthrough moment? Well, it was. And I think this is the weird thing. When new things came along, like the Prophet 5 or the OBXA, Oberheim, range of synthesizers which were wonderful which i moved on to at that time you always thought the new thing was going to be better and in some ways they were they could do more and they were a bit lither mm. and a bit more reliable as history went on and then we then had 20 or 30 years of developments and people doing wonderful new machines but it's it's sort of now we are all beginning to realize that no one however brilliant they've made a synthesizer they've never really made one as good as the cs80 um we sort of kind of it was a fantastic hole in one and is that they they did something wonderful. I don't think they quite knew what they'd done. And they moved on into smaller uh, types of synthesizer and, and the technology moved to a slightly different form of technology that was making the sounds, which is probably easier for them to mass produce, etc., etc. But nowadays, analog is king again. It's a bit like the revival of vinyl. Yeah. You know, uh, musicians really just want that actual machine that you can touch with your hands and, uh, you know, bend the note with your actual hand, an actual knob for a job we would say, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> uh, and that's, and I think even today, most synth heads mm. would probably agree with me that the CS80, um, they'd probably argue about the top three, but it would be in everybody's top three of all synthesizers of all time. CS80 was my, the first synth I bought when Toto started. I really wanted to have something distinctive and new when the band began. 
at the time I just had a, uh, I had a mini Moog. I had a, uh, uh, an Oberheim DS2 sequencer and a synthesizer expander module for the most part. But, um, once I heard a CS80, I had to have one. Uh, well, that's that's a, that's your second wonder. Very good. We stay in the world of music and indeed musicals with your third wonder. Yes, Hamilton. Mm. Hamilton, the show. Yeah. Um, Lin-Manuel Miranda's miraculous musical. Um, yeah. And look, uh, there'll be every other person in the street who's seen it would tell you the same thing. It is an absolutely yeah. fabulous piece of work. Now, I'm coming into this on two levels here, Clive. One is as the guy who writes musicals mm. and who looks at this, at the craft involved in this piece. And I just think the craft in every line, in every thought, in every process they made, in every movement is just so magnificent. I just wonder at it. I just love, it's just wonderful. I find it moving in a different way from everybody else, I think. Because when I went to see it for the first time in the flesh, in the yes. theatre, I'd heard some of the songs before. Uh, it made me cry. And I mm. think a lot of people, it makes them cry because of the story it's telling, particularly towards the end. But actually, I was crying way before that because mm. I'm just in a room with a new piece of work that is so extraordinary and so brilliant. Yeah. It's making me cry. And I used to make fun of people like um, uh, composers who went to Bay Bayreuth to hear Wagner's pieces for the first time, for example. Mm. And they used to write these things about how they were moved to tears. I think, what, you mean about Wotan and Siegfried <laughs> and Brunhilde? How could you be moved by that story? It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's because it goes on so long. <laughs> yes, quite moved to tears by the length of it. Um, but then I, I now kind of start understanding it because I think what they were really saying was, this guy is so good at what he's doing. Uh, I'm just sort of floored by it. And I don't feel professional jealousy at all towards Lin-Manuel Miranda doing something that I also do like way better. I just think how fantastic to be alive when someone, something this good, mm. this brilliantly thought through exists. And I used to say that West Side Story was the greatest musical ever written. Mm. And you have to revise these things every so often because you can't just say always will be forever and ever and ever. Yeah. It, it is, West Side Story is an absolute masterpiece. No question about it. So is Guys and Dolls, blah, blah, blah. They're all yeah. there. But I think that Hamilton's, uh, it's not because it's newer. Uh, it is because as in, in terms of its craft, there's kind of not a word or a note out of place. And what they took was West Side Story is a classic universal archetypal story of all time. Yeah. Basically Romeo and Juliet. And even Romeo and Juliet, the one we know from Shakespeare, is based on about three other templates before sure. it. You know, the impossible love of two people mm. divided here. OK, so they took one of the great stories. So you've already got a great story that lots of people have had a go at quite yeah. successfully. And they made it wonderful by making it relevant to New York in the 1940s, late 40s, 50s. And they wrote fantastic music. Stephen Sondheim's lyrics are brilliant, although Stephen Sondheim himself doesn't think they're his best lyrics because he was very young and inexperienced at the time. And he, in, in my view, and I think he, if he were still here today, Sondheim would agree, he wrote much more brilliant lyrics as his career went on, as you'd expect. Well, uh, he had less control lyrics, over it as well, didn't he? I think that's... Yes, he yeah. did. And, you know, and there were, he was a very, very young man in his <laughs> 20s, you know, working with the big boys on Broadway. And, uh, look, West Side Story is absolutely brilliant. There are some moments of it that are unparalleled in music theatre. And uh, so, uh, yes, I've always thought that. And then Hamilton comes along and it takes what doesn't look like a great universal story of all time. It, you know, the guy who fixed the, the American, you know, did parts of the American Constitution and basically worked out how their economy was going to work. Yeah. That's basically who <laughs> Hamilton was. Uh, he's not even like the glamorous, 
you know, George Washington or any of these people. He's basically the guy who did the homework. Yeah. And... Uh, who most people what, haven't really heard of. As, uh, yes, quite. Started. Even people in America don't really know much yeah. about him. Not like they do the other founding fathers. Mm. And you think, how could you possibly make the most gripping and exciting and moving and joyous uh, piece of music theatre out of this person's story? And yet they do. And that is the fantastic skill mm. of the creatives, uh, people behind that piece, particularly Lin-Manuel Miranda and his, and his many workshop casts he worked with before. Yeah. It took six years to develop to get onto the stage. And of course it's and, rap as know, well, which is not the traditional type of music used in, in West End or Broadway, or other musicals. Yes. Yes, and I, I think, I mean, it's what it is, is it is rap and hip-hoppy and it, it tunes in, like all the greatest musicals have over, over time, to the popular music of the time that anybody in the street would enjoy. But in fact, it's also incredibly knowledgeable about show music and about musicals. I mean, Lin Manuel is, is a showman in a sense that he knows how you do a great Broadway musical. And his idol would be Stephen Sondheim, mm. you know, uh, not Alicia Keys. You know, so uh, not that he loved Alicia Keys. It's just <laughs> that he's someone who came along with a form he knew and understood. He knew about the, the, the rise and fall of how you do a two hour show in a theater. He loved that and he wanted to do that. So he's actually married up this popular music style with something uh, uh, that, with the sophistication of how you tell a story over two hours rather than how you have a hit that lasts three yeah. minutes. And that's actually much, much harder than people may think it is because a great three minute song that only has to be heard on the radio or played on a dance floor demands much less in a sense than a, than a song that has to tell a complicated story or that has to tell you complicated emotions that change during the song which is what's generally required on the stage yeah do you, just asking you about your own career as a, a musical writer as well is it quite a frustrating aspect of uh, trying to get success there because as you're saying you've got to get a lot of things together the music's got to be good the the story's got to in some way uh, resonate with the audience the the producers have got to put enough money into it you've got to get the right stars you get a few bad reviews and it might uh, finish you <laughs> off or or yes. or whatever you know there's so, there's so many factors and there've been loads of musicals it, it is. come and go it's incredibly uh, complex structure to try and get right, number one, as a piece of creative work. But it's also a very difficult market to, to work in because it's more or less entirely commercial. Even when it's done by, even when, you know, state funded theatres do musicals, they're generally getting additional funding from private investors who want to try and make yeah. a commercial hit thereafter. Most theatres that put on musicals try and put them on to make money and to get people into the theatre, yeah. whether it's a, a subsidised theatre or it's a commercial theatre. But the other thing is that uh, doing this in England uh, or in Britain is much harder than doing it in America, because in America there is an inherent uh, respect for the form amongst all theatre goers. Mm. So they say, oh, well, it's a new musical. Great, let's go and see what it's like. And in Britain, the general attitude is, do I already know the music? Yes. Uh, why don't I already know it? Why should I go and see a new musical? You know, I want to go and see an old musical. I know the musical. Yeah. You know, give me Mamma Mia where I know every single song and I love the songs. Don't ask me to listen to new music. Whereas the Americans treat um, the musical as a kind of proper art form. Yeah. Uh, and so that lots of people in America try out lots of musicals all the time yeah. and then decide you can't necessarily get it right exactly on the day one, that you've got to you know, spend time over this thing and workshop it and invest in it and give it a chance to establish yeah. itself. The, the other fact you didn't quite touch on with musicals now is that once, it's, once something is a success, it, it stays there forever. 
Uh, it's it's on in London, it's on in New York, it's in Tokyo, wherever. So whether you're talking about the Lion King or Hamilton yeah. or Les Miserables, which opened to poor reviews when yeah. it first but once it got going, it's a stuff, and they're all subject to COVID. They're all still there, and that yes. uh, that uses up uh, the space for the audience that might want to go and see uh, a new musical. Yes, I, th- I think that's a very good point. But as a person who's written, I don't know, like a dozen musicals, I guess, and I'm, I'm, most of them have been on in London at some point, I, I would say that one of the things that happens is you don't have to run in the West End for 25 years. You can put a show on, and as long as people kind of know it's there, um, I mean, my sh- musicals are done all the time by amateur groups, by schools and colleges, yeah. and it just goes on being redone and revived, etc. And here's the thing. If you, you know, if you make a good film, Let's say you make a great film in 1975. Hmm. Uh, That's it. That film will, of course, be shown on television, will have its cult followers and you still being on the telly now Hmm. and all the rest of it. But it's the same film. What's quite exciting about the theatre is if you have, if you do something in 1975, someone can revive it 20 years later, change lots of things about the way it's produced and, and bring it completely a new, fresh approach to the same piece. And that's, in a sense, how classical music has survived so long is that when you play a piece of Bach that was written 250 years ago, it's when you play it now, it's today. Yes. It's in real time. And what you're doing to it is absolutely fresh and now. And I think that's the great uh, wonder, really, of, of music and musical theatre. Um, one, the, one of the amazing songs in it to me is The Room Where It Happened. Yeah. Okay. And that's Burr uh, wanting to be in the room where a deal is being cut between Hamilton and Jefferson and Madison, right? Yeah. Do I have yeah, right? which sounds so boring, doesn't it? They're trying to figure out where the banks go and where the capital goes. Yeah, it's a song about the compromise wherein Hamilton basically said, we can trade away the capital of of the United States to be down near you guys in Virginia um, if you pass my debt plan, if you find the votes to pass my financial plan. Yeah. Um, Which sounds super dry, but we... You you wrote a Broadway show about creating a financial plan for the United States. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it swings, baby, it swings. It does. (laughs) I just have to say... You, sir, have got some huevos rancheros. Really, it does. It takes balls. It takes balls to write this kind of musical. And uh, so what's your fourth wonder? (laughs) My fourth one is school teachers. Uh, Because, you know, there's nothing I've said on this whole podcast so far. uh, And there's nothing I've ever said about music or learnt about music or tried to transmit about the things that I do that was not in some way inspired and encouraged by school teachers in the first place. And I can think of, like everybody can, I can think of two or three teachers who completely set me on my course Mm. and who were my champions as well as my teachers. And the more I go on in life, I just think these are the most precious and wonderful people. My own daughter is a teacher in a large London comprehensive school, and it has brought back to me the enormous challenges, probably way, way greater challenges now than there were when I was at school. And the incredible patience and the word love comes to mind. These teachers are often absolutely love those kids and they are incredibly patient and kind to them and they they bring out the best of them and quite often get no thanks for it. Mm. Uh, but, you know, but they really, really care for them. And, you know, to, in a very, very serious way, I'm sorry to bring the tone of it down so low, but, you know, with this kind of epidemic of hideous school shootings in the United States. Yes. In almost every case, the teacher has thrown themselves in front of the bullets to protect a child. And I just think school teachers are just amazing. And their dedication and their commitment to their pupils 
is an amazing thing. And I think in some cases, they are better parents to some of those children than their own parents are. And I know it's a controversial thing to say, but I know that they care so much for those children and how they would want to protect them and have the best for them in their lives. So they are one by my fourth wonders. All right, well, you're obviously thinking of perhaps some particular teachers and then your daughter and so forth. Uh, doing a great job but it's it's interesting though you do television programs radio programs about music uh, other people do you know documentaries documentaries about history or there's you know there's uh, you know um, yeah brian cox will t- tell us about science and quite a lot of these subjects people don't really enjoy at school or say they don't or didn't pick <laughs> up but then love it when it's represented now maybe as you as broadcasters you're you're more inspiring than uh, every teacher uh, can hope to be and you haven't got to worry about discipline and all that kind of thing but uh, are, are are all teachers getting through to all pupils uh, you're you are evidently a, a clever child at a at a high quality school and onto oxford first class degree and everything but that's not the experience of everybody no, but I think that, you know, I suppose I'm uh, talking in one respect about a subject that I know best, which is music. My, my daughter happens to be not a music teacher, but uh, when I think of music, um, you know, the relationship between people who do well at music and who sort of thrive and are sparked off uh, by a teacher and your necessarily academic success is not necessarily a clear line. You know, a lot of great musicians weren't, you know, particularly successful academically at school, but a music teacher said, why don't you, why don't you play the guitar and, you know, mm. help you along the way and had a band and it led, one thing led to another. And I, I know that because I'm sure Brian Cox and, you know, Attenborough and all these other people who do these things, the historical Dan Snow, etc. Mm. I think they'd all say the same thing, which is because of my programmes, a lot of my programmes are shown in classes to schools by teachers. Yes. And there's quite a big overlap. And I speak to student, the teachers quite a lot. And I have a, a lot of, you know, teach, speak at teachers' conferences and things like this. Uh, and involved in various organisations to do with teachers. And I meet them all the time and I think, well, my job's easy. I can go, you know, to some beautiful building and say, this is where this happened and isn't it exciting? Mm. This, I'm not in front of a whiteboard in a classroom on a cold February morning trying to yeah. keep their interest up. It's easy for me to do that. And also, I don't have to stop for some irritating child yeah. putting up the hand saying, you know, I don't understand what you just said. Uh, and I think teachers do the same job. It's just way more difficult. And they do, some of them do it absolutely brilliantly. Uh, and of course, they would now use all these resources of people like me spouting off on telly uh, in those classes. So that in a way, it's better for both worlds. But I think really what a great teacher does is not so much tell you the stuff you need to know, but um, show you that it's worth your investing your interest in it and actually getting your interest sparked in it. And I think a lot of the time that does happen, even if the people, the children concerned, don't actually know that's happening at the time. Mm. You know, I think a lot of school pupils who decide on doing a certain subject that they're kind of interested one of the reasons they they choose that subject is they like the teacher and they think the teacher's good and I think lots of people don't know what it is they want to do at university for example until they meet a teacher who teaches something that suddenly sparks something in them and of course what the teacher's really doing is saying you know you this is your journey to take Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Uh, but your fifth wonder, this takes us back into the world of music. Uh, away from yes. musicals, but into a different era of Laura, uh, music. So tell us so, about this. So this is uh, called The Symphony of Psalms, and it's by the composer Igor Stravinsky, and he wrote it in 1930. Yeah. And um, it's... Look, I'm just going to shortcut here. I could do a long description of why. I'm just telling you it is the greatest choral masterpiece of the 20th century, probably one of the greatest choral masterpieces of all time. Right. It is incredible. And I don't know... I mean, I don't know many classical musicians, particularly in the choral field, who do not feel that it is an absolutely legendary epoch, great transformative work that is both beautiful and extraordinary, but also one of those pieces that comes along from time to time that changes the ground rules for everybody. Everybody goes, oh, you could write like that. That's interesting. Mm. Uh, I might try that too. And, um, you know, he, the piece is, just to describe it for people who won't know it, it's piece for an orchestra with very specific instruments chosen and some specifically left out. So it's an unusual orchestral um, mm. list of players, which Stravinsky did all the time. Uh, and it's for choir. And it's the Psalm 150 in the Vulgate edition of the, of the Latin Bible, which means it was the sort of, um, you know, kind of popular version of the Bible that was in medieval times. Yeah. Uh, and it's not that accurate, but it's great. Yeah. It's actually great for singing, yeah. as it happens. And so Stravinsky took this, and he wanted to he wanted to write this. Now, what normal choral composers would do? They say, "Ah, psalms. Yes, let's have a choir singing a psalm, um, and then maybe we might add an accompaniment of organ or something." What he said was, "I want to make a symphony, like it's a concert piece. They happen to be singing a psalm, and I'm going to make the psalms into a symphony." So he just picked, picked actually not very much of psalm, not even the whole of uh, Psalm 100, I think. Uh, and he set this to music, and he, he has three movements that are sort of joined together, and it's like it is like a symphony. So it's, it's sort of strange hybrid. Now, people had written music, you know, for choir and orchestra from, from you know for the last three hundred years. Handel, Handel's Messiah, for a good example, at least for orchestra and choir. Um, so it's not as if it hadn't been done before. He just did it with this twentieth-century sensibility. He thought, well, why don't, what happens if you write that now, sounding very contemporary? And up until that point, I think it's probably fair to say that a lot of choral music, probably the mainstream amount of choral music that anybody heard in their life, was kind of, you might describe it as ethereal or lifting you to a higher spirit mm. and sort of something soothing and beautiful and sublime. That was kind of the what you were trying to get at in choral music. Mm. And even today, what most people think of as choral music is, is that, isn't it? It's kind of lifting you into yes. a sort of gentle, cloudy, heavenly-like state. And he came along and said, what if it was really rhythmic and energetic and sort of a bit edgy and you don't know what's going to happen next in the music. And Stravinsky really was, you know, the guy 
who said to modernism, you can write fantastic music and it can be incredibly different and exciting. You don't have to be scared about the past to do that. You can integrate ideas from the past, but you can just move forward and just do things. He didn't care. What, <laughs> this is the great thing, but he didn't care what, whether, what kind of reception he was going to get or people were going to say, oh my God, it's far too discordant or anything like that. He just said, I'm going to do it. Here it comes. And he was so much a sort of interesting figure up the 20th century because he was a Russian who escaped Russia and then lived in France and Switzerland and then went to America. And he's kind of, in a way, a metaphor for the 20th century, isn't it? Where music kind of escaped from various places and then spread everywhere very quickly and changed as it went on the way. And he, he in a way, did that, having grown up in Russia, in Imperial Russia. And he starts off writing in this style, beginning of the 20th century, it sounds like Ritsky, Korsakov and the other Russian composers of the Imperial Russian period. And then he, he comes across Debussy, who's a French composer, uh, modernist French composer, would have been considered modernist at the beginning of the 20th century. And he goes, oh, gosh, that's what he's doing. is really interesting. He's sort of playing with harmony and doing new things. He said, I'm going to do that, but fast yeah. and loud. And he suddenly then leaves Russia and starts to write this extraordinary music. And it, it, it's just one of those moments. He wrote this piece. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful piece. But I don't know a choral composer alive. I'm pretty, I'm just going to put my cards on the table who wouldn't have wanted to have written it. Because it's like saying, this is how it could sound instead. Right. Uh, and you could, you could trace through, all the way through, uh, the influence that it had on other composers. And it's also just something that I heard at a very impressionable age when I was first going to university. And I heard this piece and I just, you know, it blew my mind. And so that's why it has to be one of the ones of the world, because it led to so much else. And you know, uh, Richard Curtis made that film called Yesterday. Yes. Where he imagined a world where the Beatles had never happened. And then mm. some guy, you know, discovers all those songs. Uh, I, I remember saying to Rich at the time, you know, I could do like a non-populist version of this film <laughs> because what I want to do is the film where what would actually have happened if there'd been no Beatles. What, what stuff would have changed and what wouldn't? What would have, how, because mm. you could actually probably pick out from the bands that were around, like the Kinks and, mm. you know, the Beach Boys. I mean, you probably work out what would, in fact, uh, have survived and what would have really picked up because we're so aware of the fact that the Beatles changed everything for everybody so therefore we know what that story is but I, I said to him why, why, you know, wouldn't it be fun to do a version he said no it wouldn't be fun <laughs> it, it'd be very nerdy uh, but actually I feel that with Stravinsky is that you it's hard to disentangle now the music that we hit, we heard in both films and in concert halls and everywhere really uh, without his contribution because he kind of changed the direction of mainstream music and, uh, when I hear this piece, I just think uh, how amazing to be the person who wrote this. And it's just beautiful and extraordinary and different and modern and, um, yeah, great. Uh, uh, for, th for this sort of music where it's, you know, it's based on songs, based on the Bible, do, do you think you need to have a, uh, you know, a, a concept of religion or spirituality in order to appreciate the, the, these sort of works? Well, I, I think it's true to say that Igor Stravinsky himself was an atheist. Uh, so uh, maybe not. However, he did do quite a lot of religious music, I mean, or all these pieces with religious texts, uh, or quite a few you know, in his life. And I think what happens is that all composers who work in countries where there are well-established religions like Christianity going on there, are to some extent uh, culturally attached to uh, those religions, even though they may not be in terms mm. of their faith, internal faith. You know, and I grew up as a chorister and sang religious music every day of my life as a child. And it's just completely imbued in me. And I write a lot of choral music for churches, but I also write choral music that isn't for churches. Mm. And, I, you know, it's hard to escape the cultural impact of those things, whatever your faith is. I don't know for a fact 
that, uh, I mean, I think what uh, Stravinsky would have done is that he would have thought that there was tremendous equity and meaning in some of those words he was setting, even though he might not himself personally sign up to, after yeah. all, you know, the Psalms are Judaic. They're not even Christianity, they're, they're Judaism. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think what people often do is, is, is find meaning. What I do certainly is when I write, I mean, I write music for churches now still. And what I do is I, I think, well, what is in these words, these ancient words that we're, we're setting, what do we find in the modern world that we find meaning from it? Yeah. And I don't challenge anybody to say, well, you've got to believe in God to enjoy this or you've got to be an atheist. Or I just say, well, I know from my own pieces, one of my pieces, my Requiem, Eternal Light, has had something like 800 live performances around the world in lots of very different places. And I know from the responses I get back from people who've been at those performances or have performed in them mm. is that everybody takes something different from it. So you can't actually saying, well, this is this says this, this means that is a bit pointless. You're better off just writing your piece, taking the brief in hand yeah. and just going with it. And I think in a way that's what uh, Stravinsky was doing. And he often chose Latin because it was like a neutral language. Yeah. It's like a sort of language you could pronounce however you liked because mm. um, no one definitively knew how it sounded. And it was kind of a, like a template language for all the European languages, etc. I think he, he chose it deliberately for its neutrality in a sense in that way. Right. OK, well, that's uh, Stravinsky. And thank you for introducing me anyway to his Symphony of Psalms. I, I suppose I'd heard it before, but I've been listening to it. Uh, ready to pose interesting questions about it, but you've answered them all uh, without me having to prompt you. Um, and of course, very, um, very particular part of Stravink Stravinsky's writing career that uh, came along. He wrote in different styles, different periods of his life. Yes, um, but, but this you... time he was deliberately trying trying to mine backwards. So, so what do people used to write like? And then he did his own thing. All right. But but very much in the, I suppose, the Western uh, tradition or the European tradition. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But we're moving on to something else now in a different part of the world for your sixth wonder. Yes. So my sixth wonder are the Aboriginal song lines. Mm. Now, this is an extraordinary thing, um, which is the Aboriginal people of Australia um, had these songs. And when white colonialists arrived in Australia, they just thought they were like, well, they're singing their songs, their folk mm. songs, you know. Uh, and let, you know, thought no more about it. And then it gradually transpired uh, relatively late in the period between white people arriving and discovering this. I mean, like quite a long time after, possibly even as much as a century, they discovered that these songs weren't just straightforward folk songs about, you know, someone going down to milk the cow yeah. or the kangaroo. Um, they were maps. And that the Aboriginal peoples had um, mapped the place they lived in, the shape of where they lived mm. in song, so that they could actually get around. Now, if you or I were plonked in the middle of the Nullarbor Desert in yeah. Australia, we would last about two minutes yes, it's because it all looks the same. Well, it, well, it does uh, really, doesn't you know, it? It does go on for many yeah. square miles, square kilometres of, uh, yeah. of similar and, looking and, you know, if bush. It's a desert. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, uh, and, you know, they had to find a way of making their way around safely so they could get to water, etc. Um, and so they started to look at the landscape as a contour and they converted that into song. And uh, the way it worked was absolutely extraordinary because, of course, these were all lots of different families and communities and tribes from all over this vast area. Uh, they were not a one homogenous bunch of people who all spoke the same and all that kind of stuff. And they had this tradition of walkabout where a young man goes off and or I think some, I don't know if it was just men or women and men, had to go off as a sort of initiation to go walk off into the desert. Mm. 
and sort of find themselves. Uh, and what would happen is you'd know your bit, your community would know your bit of the landscaping song. And then if someone turned up on walkabout from another area, um, they would, you'd sing it to you. So you could then pick up the tune and say, ah, oh, so that means there's a hill there and there's a valley there and then there's the big rock there and I can go through there and there's the water. So that in a sense, they all for each other held the map of their bit of Australia. No one knew the whole map of mm. Australia in, in a vast song lasting 12 hours, but they all knew their bit. So they would each time they moved to a new community's area, they would know the song bits for them. Now, I, I've often wanted to do a documentary about this because I think it's one of the most extraordinary things to have existed on our planet. Mm. This idea that the, a place the size of Australia could be mapped in song. But one of the difficulties with wanting to do a documentary about it is, is these are sacred songs to the Aboriginal people. And uh, they don't like this stuff being photographed and filmed and sort of captured because for them it's alive, it's like a spirit, it is alive. Yeah. And therefore, turning up with a camera crew as a white person saying, oh, can we film your songs? They're very, very justifiably uncomfortable about this. Yes. They feel as if in a way you're stealing it. It's a bit like their um, art, which has become fashionable to buy um, in recent years. Yeah. There is there is a little bit. There, there have been some Indigenous peoples of Australia have done a few bit. You can see a few bits of these songs on, on YouTube because they've done these film sections themselves. And that's a different matter. It's up to them to decide what to do about that. But as a phenomenon, Bruce Chatwin wrote a, a rather brilliant book about it called The Song Lines mm. back in, I think, in the 70s, yeah. where he basically explained all this. He discovered all this, thought it was amazing and wrote a book about it. And if, you're, if anybody listening to this is interested, mm. just check out Bruce Chatwin's book, The Song Lines. Yeah. It is astonishing, really an astonishing thing. Well, and one of the many things that us as whiteies from Europe uh, have to keep reminding ourselves is that these people from our countries turned up thinking they were sophisticated and artistic and brilliant and knew all sorts of things. They turned up and what they thought they saw were people who didn't have any of these yeah. things and turned out to be sophisticated in a very, very different and extraordinary way. All Aboriginal uh, stories are handed down through songs and dances from generation to generation or song lines. So when you had to go somewhere, you would have a song and you would sing that song and the, the map would be in the song. Aboriginal learning is observation and mimic. They look and they learn. So when we see a kangaroo, he's bouncing. For a kookaburras, you might do kookaburra sounds. Right, uh, well, let's carry on. We've got one more. Uh, one final, one final wonder from you, Howard. Yes, um, I, I think this is going to come as a bit of a surprise after all these musical things. Yes. But here it goes, and it's figs. <laughs> yeah. uh, figs. I love figs, and I love. I'm obsessed at the moment with growing figs. Oh right, lots of different varieties of them. Yes, that's a slight surprise, I would <laughs> say, because if people were to get people to list their top fruits, you know, it's one of those things. If you're like me, you get people to do, what's your favourite fruit? And he, he, there's no right answer to that. But I don't remember figs often being the thing that people go straight towards. So with that, with that introduction, yes. How could they not have them as their favourite fruit? It's the most delicious fruit known to mankind. Yeah. And here's the thing about figs, is that I'm, I'm going to say there is a musical connection here, which is that 
Um, I do a lot of, when I write long pieces and I've got to keep a big piece in my head all the time when I'm working on it. Yeah. Uh, I need a little, I need to escape the franticness of London. And we have a little place in the middle of France and uh, next to where we live is a field, which uh, I bought. Uh, and I have been growing a fake orchard of different varieties of figs in this orchard. Right. And what I do is I work for a few hours on a piece of music as a composer, and then I go into the fig field and do fig maintenance tasks. <laughs> and I carry on with my composing while I'm doing it. And I've found it's the most brilliant combination of digging and other stuff I have to do with the figs and uh, thinking my music through and working it out. And the thing about a fig is every aspect of it is of great interest, Clive, mm. because um, it's one of these things where um, the type of soil it needs or the roots, in a sense, if it's worse soil or worse root condition, <laughs> they're happier. Uh, or a lot of the things you don't expect, it, they, some varieties of them are, are fertilized by a particular wasp that has to climb into it and stay in it yes. and die in it to make it work. And uh, they are very beloved of wasps and hornets. I have to say that's probably their only downside. Um, but the point is that I love the taste of a fig, doesn't everybody? I love the smell of a fig tree. Mm. Even just going near a fig tree puts me into a new world of joy. And uh, I'm obviously learning by trial and error. I keep seeing YouTube videos about how better to look after my figs, especially we're in an area where there is frost in the winter and they have to be protected. Stop me when I'm going on about this too much. But I cannot think of anything in the world because the fig came from the Middle East where it's terribly difficult to grow anything and always has been because of shortage of water and amount of desert and fierce temperatures, etc., etc. And yet the fig uh, thrived in these areas, came from you know, Afghanistan and Persia and all, you know the hardest places to grow things. And it thrived and gave mankind this fantastic, man and woman kind, mm. this fantastically delicious fruit. It is so delicious. It's the huge reward, uh, given how difficult it is to grow them and how they have managed to survive almost any environment to do this. It used to be called the poor man's fruit, apparently, back in the uh, medieval times, because basically anybody could grow a fig tree. Yeah. Whereas now we think of figs as being a delicacy, something rather special has to come from a long way away. But anyway, I'm trying very hard in zone eight, which is what we are, climatically speaking, in France, uh, to grow my figs year round. And well, they don't grow in the winter, obviously, but I've tried for them not to die. Yes. So that's the key right. thing. And I've got lots of different varieties. And I just, the, my relationship with the figs has become an incredibly close and a wondrous thing. And that's why they have to be a wonder, Clive. They can't just be a, your favorite fruit. All right. Okay. Well, uh, you, you make a very good case for figs. I, I have a, uh, I come from a background and a time when uh, figs, when you first knew them in my part of uh, Britain, uh, they they didn't come as fruit. They came as tinned or dried or or a yes. syrup and so forth. Well, and, and then I and then I discovered you, by going on holiday and later life. And you'd come to places like France or or anywhere in the Mediterranean. And there are these fantastic trees where they and they ripen. They're quite uh, exotic, erotic almost uh, figs, aren't they? They're they're, they're yes, ripeness. Yes. Uh, and then, but the next stage, I find a house I still live in has got a fig tree in the garden, and they're hopeless in England because they don't grow and ripen. They just they're bullet-sized fruit, and they're no good. And I've got other sort of Mediterranean fruit that grows all right, but figs. So I've I've sort of gone mm. against figs because of the, but if your your justification, your description of growing them in France makes much more sense. 
Well, obviously I've had mixed success because they are, it's quite tricky. Some of the varieties really would rather be, you know, 400 miles further south. Yeah. But, um, you know, I realise that. I'm trying to coax them into into enjoying the new climate. But the thing is that um, if you ask me what my favourite biscuit was, mm. Clive, at any point in my life, long prior to my current interest in figs, yes. I would have said fig roll. Really? You must have had fig roll biscuits when you were young. I certainly fig have. Fig roll biscuits, it... which the Americans call fig newtons, don't they? Mm. Um, are the most delicious biscuits it's possible to imagine. Well, I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that either, I'm afraid. But <laughs> I, let's not go down a biscuit argument, uh, which is which is a late night, uh, possibly drunken argument. Um, but uh, no, I, I can see what you're saying about figs. They are interesting. Richard Dawkins, one of his books, does a great introduction to this. When he says, well, it's all very interesting, the story of, of you know, fig leaves in, in the Garden of Eden. But the story of how figs get fertilised, which must be what you're talking about with uh, the wasp and, and so forth, is fascinating in itself. So, uh, well, mm. all, all trees and uh, bushes and fruit production is very interesting. It's very wonderful. Well, uh, also, I think that... Um there's a, there's a metaphor here for lots of things, because we both got to the age, or, you know, haven't we, guys, <laughs> yes. where what we do, I, I'm thinking, one of the reasons I've planted you know, 200 trees is because I, these trees will mature long after I'm gone. Yes. And what I think it's a wonderful thing to do uh, with your time when you're composing in the garden yeah. is actually to leave something like, because my fig trees are all young and-ish, yeah. and they'll still be there unless someone comes and builds a house on the plot yeah. or something like that. They'll still be there in 100 years' time. And I find that an amazing thought, yes. that they will reach their absolute apogee. Yeah. And people were saying, my God, look at that fig orchard, um, long after I'm gone. Mm. And I just think that leaving something for the generations for whom we have so trashed the planet, yes. that something that's good and lovely and plentiful and uh, you know all the rest of it, is the least we can do. Well, I'm all for I'm all for planting trees, and I'm enthusiasts for that. Well, look, Howard, thank you so much yeah. for for telling us your uh, your seven wonders. We've got to the end. We've got to seven uh, seven fascinating wonders. Uh, and now I have to choose the the wonder of wonders from your list of seven. The one which uh, struck me as particularly wonderful, as you've described it on this podcast. And I've been tempted by all of them as you go along, but I don't think, just in terms of uh, it's sort of nominative determinism in a way. I don't think I can look past Stevie Wonder. But anyway, uh, thank you very much. Uh, th thank you very much, Howard Goodall, with your Seven Wonders and your Wonder of Wonder, Stevie Wonder. If you enjoyed listening to My Seven Wonders, it'd be wonderful if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform, site or provider you found us on. Thank you very much. Seven Wonders with Clive Anderson is a Stack production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the Acast Creator Network. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.